Hi, Mark. Hey, Perry. How you doing? How you doing? We're just waiting on Lou. You got it. I'm all ready. Good evening. Welcome to the Music Rebels Podcast, episode number 22. My name is Perry. And of course, on drums, we have our Carolinian cohort, Lou Calicchio. And as always, we have Mark Smith with us as well. So um, how are you guys doing? Doing good. Happy Easter. Whatever. Happy Easter. Doing good too. Happy Easter, guys. What a great night to do a show, right? Why Why not? Yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So, uh, Mark, you, um, you came up with a good, a good category here. Actors who have been portraying musicians. Yeah. And uh, it, I think that's a good subject. Yeah, research for this exploded like a bad porno movie. Um, no, it, it, it was a huge amount of results. It was great. Uh, so, yeah. Cool. Well, let's get into that uh, in a minute. But I just want to... Uh, I just want to... Uh, I have a ruling on something here. A ruling? Yeah. We okay. were talking uh, the other week about actors who have, you know, musicians who became, became actors. Well, now we're going the other route. But I had this thing on David Bowie, and you guys wanted me to uh, get a ruling on it, correct? Yeah, that's right. And, well, okay, so it says here, uh, David Bowie's acting career predated his commercial breakthrough as a musician. He's studying avant-garde theater and mime under Lindsey Kemp. He was given a role of Cloud in uh, a 1967 theatrical production of Poirot and Turquoise. And it was later made into a television movie. He also was in a BBC drama, all predating his music, uh, his breakthrough as a musician. So that's what I meant when I said he was an actor before he was a musician. Okay. So and that also applies to Mickey Dolenz. Uh, Mickey Dolenz was, yeah, he was, uh, yeah, he was, um, what was he? He was a TV, he was in a TV show or something, wasn't he? Uh, I think it was called The Banana Splits. And, you know, Mark had informed me, uh, Mark, you remember telling me that uh, Phil Collins was a child actor. I had Phil Collins picked, but uh, when you read his autobiography, you'll discover that before he even played music, he was a child actor. He was on the stage production of Oliver. He played the Artful Dodger, and he was well-known for that he got a uh, quite a bit of press he could have actually become a child actor he did a couple films uh but he chose music thank god and lou even uh even uh steve marriott remember from the small faces he was wasn't he one of the police i mean i have some more wasn't he uh, he was a little he was an actor as well i i didn't know that really yeah, steve i think he was, was, I think he was huh. kind of like phil collins yeah i you know i i was too actually you were? Were we in TV commercials? I, w- I was in a TV commercial when I was 16. Yeah, a Burger King commercial. You really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Can we find it on YouTube or something? Or? I've, I've tried looking. It was uh, in the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area. Um, yeah, it, uh, you know, we had a, my family had a skating rink in New Jersey, and uh, a company, an uh, advertising company, leased it out to film a commercial. And so me, my brother, and sister got to be in it. Um, but then after that, they asked if we'd be interested in auditioning for a Dr. Pepper commercial. 
and we did, I did, and I didn't get it. But if I had, I would have been in a commercial with David Norton of uh, you're a pepper, I'm a pepper, yeah, yeah. Would you like to hear my lines? Because I remember my lines. I wasn't animated enough because I was a little punk ass. But Let's hear the lines. lines. Okay. Hey, little Gus, why don't you come on out and play with us? <laughs> it didn't come out like that. It came out more like this. Uh, hey, hey, little Gus, why don't you come out and play with us? <laughs> the Burger King uh, commercial on Kinnikamack Road in Park Ridge. No, no, oh. they, they should have. They should have. No, it, yeah. it, 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 this was this was the late seventies. This was nineteen seventy eight. So it was the era of roller disco. <laughs> Believe me. Wow. Yeah. yeah. No, we went on. We went on an off ramp there, didn't we? Yeah. So, one, Mark, why don't you start? Since you <laughs> this category of actors portraying musicians, why don't you start off with it? Sure. You know. um I'm going to just comment, A, on actor uh, movies that I saw. I came across a lot of movies I didn't see. I'm not going to say anything. And I'm going to start with a non-rock and roll role, but it hit me hard because I'm a big fan of Beethoven. Uh, so Gary Oldman as Beethoven in Immortal Beloved. Um, wow. I grew up Beethoven's ninth from when I was five years old was ingrained into me by my grandfather and my father, and I knew all the, the sections of that. So in that movie, and I always knew that Beethoven was just, you know, he suffered from a lot of <laughs> issues. And um, I thought he handled the role beautifully. It might have been a little overdramatic at times. The director that did it was his first movie. Mm. But as far as Gary Oldman's concerned, I can never see anybody playing Beethoven ever again. And uh, at the end, when you hear Beethoven's ninth going and he just remembers memories of his childhood, uh, how he became, how he got the ear damage in one ear, and, and all. Great movie. Uh, still watch it because of the the music in it, and uh, highly recommend it. If either of you guys haven't seen it, just watch it. The but I heard it was excellent. Yeah. Well, uh, um, he Gary Oldman is he's like Robert De Niro. He's kind of scary the way they they inhabit these roles, and amongst other actors too. You can name Kristen Bell and Aaron, a whole bunch of others. Um, and one actually I'm going to mention is my actor. Uh, who actually inhabited a role so much that it was just eerie. But um, that's Gary Oldman. He is that one of the most talented actors of his generation, if that's our generation or not. He was but, uh, he was my it, favorite Dracula. I yeah, loved him yes, Dracula. Was, yeah. And Mark, this thing doesn't have to be at rock and roll. These are actors that have played musicians. Yeah. So Be- Beethoven was certainly a musician. Absolutely. And no, and, no ruling and, necessary. And you know what? If I could, something about the rules here. There's a lot of good movies about musicians, but the musician character may be a fictional character. I say let's leave them in because we have some really good movies where an actor went really worked hard to become a musician, but it wasn't a biography. It was a, right, right. a movie. And those are always good because it exposes yeah. the artistic side to the masses. So uh, I say we include those. Do we have okay. a verdict? Well, yeah, well, sure. Well, also, Mark, the um, thing is, you got to know what the rules are before you can break them. True. True. Okay, so while we're here, right, Gary Oldman as Sid Vicious and Sid and Nancy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Good. Nice segue, Perry. <laughs> you guys planned that. <laughs> we had a little talk. <laughs> you leave me out of this stuff. What am I on the pain on mind list? <laughs> leave the Park Ridge guy out of it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so did any of you guys see Don Cheadle play Miles Davis in a movie called Miles Ahead? No. 
No, me neither. And I do want to see that movie. It's on my list. Yeah, that's why we mentioned it. Even, you know, even if you didn't see the movie, mention it because I may have seen it. Lou may have seen it or, you know, so, yeah. But anyway, I did see Don Cheadle in a movie on cable television. And he was really good as Miles Davis. Okay, I, I have a, I, how about this? I have a segue uh, as far as in, it wasn't the actor I was going to pick, although he's one of them. I was going to mention Ray Liotta playing Frank Sinatra in the 1998 HBO Rat Pack movie. Oh, but, yeah. That yeah, was Ray Liotta? Yeah, it was Ray Liotta. Old Green Eyes was back. But Don Cheadle, I think that might have been one of his, that might have been a breakout role for him in one way. He played Sammy Davis and he was a standout. Oh, he was excellent in that. He sure was. I, think, I think both him and Joe Montana. Joe Montana as Dino. Yeah, yeah they're both nominated for, I think, Emmys. And I have been treated this day with no respect. <laughs> wow, that was a good one. I, I forgot all about that movie. What you will not give, I will take. Well, no, that's, that's, from, the, that's from a Godfather movie. <laughs> I get them all mixed up. Yeah. The mafia you know, my, the music business, Barry. My favorite scene from that movie, when... Um, I don't remember who played Frank Sinatra. Uh, Ray Liotta. Oh, duh. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Had a couple of lines. Sorry, guys. Um, but easy. when he finds out that he's not, uh, how Kennedy's kind of disassociating yeah. with him and that temper he has, that was a great scene. Yeah. Now, it's funny. Uh, the, the, the reviews were okay. Um, it doesn't mention a whole lot. You know, I was trying to find some information on there besides the cast. But they said there were some uneven lead performances, although Joe Mantegna and Don Cheadle were singled out. Um, but I thought Leota captured that, you know, Frank Sinatra, when, you know, before therapy and everything else, he said, I was a 14 carat manic depressive. He was an inferno. He would break into a rage. And I think that scene you're talking about on the helicopter pad that he had built for JFK, played by William Peterson, um, where he just destroys the, that plaque in the beginning with a sledgehammer. Yeah, he was that kind of guy. But without that kind of attitude, you could not have created that kind of music. And you know, as far as, you know, what Sinatra was, you know, he was, when he sang, he was sophisticated. When he spoke, not so much. He was a Jersey boy from Hoboken. Yeah. And Ray Liotta being from Newark, you know, you, you, got, you need authenticity. You know, many actors could do this. Michael Buble, Michael Buble is called the new Sinatra, but the only thing missing is that he's not dangerous. Sinatra was dangerous. Michael Buble is not going to shoot out streetlights in Nevada with his girlfriend. You know, Sinatra, no, my, my, Sinatra and Ava Gardner did that. Michael Bublé is doing commercials right now on TV. Now. Sure, yeah. sure. But, um, <laughs> but I, I thought that the whole casting in that movie was great. I mean, and Joe Montana and Don Cheadle were fantastic. Um, as was uh, actually Angus McFadden played the hapless uh, Peter Lawford. Um, you know, he went on. He was Robert Bruce in Braveheart. That's the same actor. Yep. Yeah. Um, and yeah, William Peterson as JFK. You know, I think he was in the CSI show. But I remember him from the uh, Manhunter movie which was the, really the prequel to the Silence of the Lamb series, uh, directed by Michael Mann of Miami yeah. Vice fame, but a great movie. And the Tooth Fairy character in Manhunter is way more terrifying than Ray Fiennes in Red Dragon. This guy was the real deal, man. Terrible. He was. Guys he was. Right yeah. now. Sorry. But, okay. All right. Who's got another, uh, another actor well, that played a... Can I, can I just say one thing, Perry? That what you mentioned about the Don Cheadle as Miles Davis... The reason I have to see it is I'm a I I'm a huge Miles Davis fan, and what I like about Miles is he changed through his whole career, but he was if you read his autobiography he stayed the same man. But they've been talking about doing a biopic on his whole career for years, which would be next to impossible, so that 
that Don Cheadle is just one era, but I, I, I know that if anyone can handle him, it would be Don Cheadle. Yeah, this was this was some era where I don't, I don't know what record label he was on, but he was having issues with the record label. And Columbia. This, yeah, and this this was uh, kind of what that movie was about. Has have anyone? I know you guys have seen this movie. I, well, it really wasn't that good. Dennis Quaid in Great Balls of Fire playing Jerry Lee Lewis. I never, I never saw it. it. It wasn't that good. In fact, in fact, um, in fact, Dennis Quaid even said he goes, it was way over the top. Way really? over the top. He said it looked like uh, the Dukes of Hazard created rock and roll. That's <laughs> how over the top it was. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It wasn't that good of a movie, but it was Dennis Quaid playing Jerry Lee Lewis. That was called Breathless. It was called, yeah. uh, that's what it was Great called. Balls of Fire. Breathless. Oh, no. Was it Breathless, really? Great Balls of Fire. Well, Jerry Lee Lewis had a song called Breathless, but I think this movie may have been called Great Balls of Fire. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And it, and it also came out at that time in the late 80s when Hollywood was just mining old rock and roll. So, you know, we had just had La Bamba. There was a couple other things. And it was just part of that, you know, they, let's get these movies out. You know, they, they kind of jump on it. Um, but Dennis Quaid, I believe Jerry Lee Lewis was on the set to advise him, which may have explained why he was over the top. <laughs> you know. Hmm. Well, who's got another one they want to throw in? I got one. What have you got? Okay. Uh, this is one of my favorites, although it is historically inaccurate, but it is Gary Busey as Buddy Holly in the Buddy Holly story. I liked it. I liked it. I, I know there I, was... So go ahead, Lou. This is I, great. Yeah. I, I love the movie, and in retrospect, the first time I saw it was at a, an old girlfriend's house. I stayed overnight at her house, and it was like not long after the movie came out, but it was on late night pre-cable television, and I, I was riveted only because I think, you know, 50s rock and roll, I'm, I got touchstones in there. The Everleys, I love. Buddy Holly, I think, is just a giant. And as I've said again, if Buddy Holly had lived, the Beatles might not have happened. Now, did, did he really sing in that, or did he mime it? No, he did everything. He played and sang. He wasn't... Like guitar he wasn't, as well, correct? Yes, he didn't lip sync. He didn't guitar sync. He played. It was, it was real, and that's part that's of the reason why... That's what I liked why, about it, I guess. Yeah. But, you know, the, the movie itself, there's a lot of historical inaccuracies... Uh, Norman Petty is not in it at all. And I, I'm starting to think that the Norman Petty idea of him being more of a bad guy may not be true. He seemed like he nurtured a lot of artists. He played keyboard, as I mentioned last week, on Sugar Shack. That was recorded at his studio in Clovis, New Mexico. Yes. You did um, that. But, you know, the whole thing about Buddy Holly never punched out a, a national music producer in the studio. Uh, that, that kind of stuff. But that was done for artistic license. But Everything you read about the movie says one thing. It was his performance and his embodiment of the character that made the movie what it is. And it's considered one of the greatest rock and roll movies of all time. Um, New York Times said it's one of the best 1,000 movies ever. It's got 100% a rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And it's all because of Busey. I, like, I always liked that movie. Yeah, yeah. And also, I just, I, he was, you know, him, Buddy Holly alone. I mean, he did things, you know, like not unlike Sam Cooke after him where he had total control. He was a 50s artist that didn't rely on other material. He had his own vision, his own sound, and his own persistence, and he did his own thing. Very cool. Good yeah. movie. Good pick. Yeah. Mark, have you got anyone? Yeah. A uh, movie that I always liked. Um, well, let's just say Billy Crudup and Jason Lee, two actors in Almost Famous. I love that movie. I thought it captured the 70s very well, maybe because Nancy Wilson had a hand in the music. Um, but Billy Crudup, to me, 
looked like a musician. He had me convinced. That's not the Billy Crudup that played Jesus. That's not the Billy Crudup that played the runner in the Nike movie. That was that's a rock star. Oh, this and, is because he's a fictitious character. That's yeah, what talking and about. Jason Lee as the lead singer in Stillwater, he had it down. He nailed it. I thought oh, he was wow. great. Is that Jason Lee? That was my name is Earl. Yeah. Yep. That was him. He reminded me of um, Paul Rogers in that movie, the way he sang and the way he did. I think he modeled himself a little after Paul Rogers in uh, Bad Company. Hmm. But But, uh, yeah, loved it. And I think that um, Billy Crudup, someone taught him how to hold a Les Paul and he got it down. I mean, he just, and who had a role in that movie? Very short, but my favorite, Mark Maron, lock the gates, (laughs) lock the gates. Very good movie. Uh, yeah, I thought they just did excellent work in that. Is that where Mark Maron gets the intro to his podcast from? Lock the gates. Yep. Yep. Exactly. When they're, it's uh, where Billy Crudup's character gets electrocuted after the second song, and they they're leaving. They're like, "We ain't playing in this place. You didn't even wire the place right." And they're getting on the bus and they're leaving. And Maron's the promoter, and he's like, "You don't leave. You can't leave. Lock the gates." And they run the gates down. Oh, okay. <laughs> Great role. But uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, Lou, since Lou went on about Buddy Holly, I wanted to go on about, um, and it was when I really here's the difference: Lou Diamond Phillips playing uh, playing uh, Richie Valens in La Bamba. Mm-hmm. He, you can tell that he didn't really know how to play guitar, and so there was a difference. Like in the Gary Busey movie that Lou mentioned, everything seemed more smooth and more real, and in La Bamba. Obviously, you can tell he didn't play guitar, and you could just tell right away. I mean, it was—it's a nice story, but I—I I didn't think it was that great of a movie. Uh, it was called La Bamba, wasn't it? Well, uh, you know, I think so. It touched, it touched base on that scene. Uh, you know what he what he went through as an artist, and it also helped um, uh, Los Lobos. You know, it did, did a lot for them. We got. <laughs> Yeah, that's, yeah. A, curse. that's yeah. a curse for them. And the thing is, it just this points to a good point, Perry. Like you <laughs> said, that he didn't look like he was playing guitar. Not every actor. That's a hard thing. If you can't play guitar, you got to be taught how to look right. And not every actor can do that. Well, that's know? why they hire people that have consultants on. Uh... Yeah, but 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 the thing is, Gary Busey really played and really sang. Oh well, okay. So let's go on about. Uh... Um, Jacqueline Phoenix and Renee Witherspoon they really sang did they not as John Johnny Cash and June Carter yeah they did a great job and um, I gotta say when it was first announced that movie I was like oh no these two because they were young and they nailed it I thought they nailed it that was a really good movie especially the drug problems uh, Joaquin just nailed that role but I heard he really sang as as John, obviously you can tell he didn't really know how to play guitar, but you know the way they filmed it, they didn't show his hands much on the neck of the guitar and things like that. You yeah. can tell when somebody doesn't even know how to play a G chord. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, no, and then yeah, they both did a good, great job. I, I did that movie. You know, yeah, that, movie. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. Lou, what did you, Lou, what did you think of uh, of uh, what was the name of that movie? Walk the line. Uh, I think it was called Walk the Line with uh, Jack Phoenix and uh, Renee, uh, Reese Witherspoon. I, I I didn't see it. Uh, hang on a second. Can you turn your Wi-Fi off for me? Yeah. Okay. Okay. No, I, I'm you know because I live in a holler in North Carolina, as we discussed, 
I have some kind of wireless internet issues, so I'm going to be, be joining you back in a second. I think I'm here. Um, <clears throat> I didn't see. Here. Walk, yeah, I didn't see Walk the Line, so I, I missed a few minutes there. All right. Well, if you ever get to catch it, I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. That, that, yeah I, I know that's Joaquin Phoenix and uh, Reese Witherspoon playing Johnny and June. Um, but I, I understand that. Yeah, it, it was quite a performance, and you know, he's a hell of an actor. The last thing I saw him, it was uh, Joker, and he won the Best Actor for it. And for a movie like that, for him to win a Best Actor says a lot. It's a great movie, but that's not the type of character that normally wins the Best Actor. So that's a testament to his talents. Absolutely, a dark yeah. character like that. Yeah. 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 I got I got one, and this is a bit of an oddball. Um, I didn't see the movie, but um, we discussed it. Perry and I were in one of our multi-levered conversations about music, and uh, it was something that came up, and it's Michael Douglas playing Liberace in Behind the Candlelight. Oh, that was a great movie. Yeah, I forgot about that. Good one. You know, it's I, I'd heard about it. I said, that sounds really interesting. And Matt Damon as uh, Scott Thorsten, I believe. <clears throat> but uh, I watched a few YouTube clips. I'm like, wow, man, it's, you know, we all know, Liberace and the whole thing, you know, back in the fifties where, you know, he was a household name. He sued people. You know, they claimed he was gay, although he was, you know, but you know, it was, it didn't matter then. It shouldn't matter now. And it shouldn't ever matter. He but, also won a defamation lawsuit when yes, uh, yes, he did. accused him of that. And, you know, good for him. You know, it's, you know, our, the, our, the line between your private life and your public life and your fans, it's a tough thing to navigate, I guess, at that level. We don't know, but you know, that's the thing. Um, but I saw the, the clips were great. Uh, the performances were great. Rob Lowe was, was great, you know, as this, like a plastic surgeon, whatever. But, you know, that, that's the story that, you know, you always wonder, you know, the, the details behind it growing up in, in the era we did. And he was an amazing piano player. Uh, that in and of itself as a musician, he was yeah. a very accomplished instrumentalist. And that's what it's about. It's about music, you know, and he entertained thousands of people. And like I said, he was a household name and, you know, yeah. that whole that whole early 80s era, Liberace, Rock Hudson and such, you know, the whole AIDS epidemic. We were young men, you know, but before up. our time. That's when he was really, really. Yeah. Before yeah. Our time. yeah. But, um, you know, Michael Douglas, he, I, he he's an Oscar winning actor, but, you know, he's really he's really good. You know, he, he, did, he you're right. He did a great job. Yeah. That's a case where, you know, his father is a, is a was a titan of the screen. Kirk Douglas. But Michael Douglas definitely, you know, made his mark in his own way. And. Um, but I said that the, the performances were praised. Steven Soderbergh directed it, you know, for the sexualized videotape, another thing, another Oscar winner. Yeah. So this was no lightweight movie, but um, it won Emmys and Golden Globes and Rotten Tomatoes, 95 percent. But, um, yeah, a little something you may not think about. You know, uh, Liberace kind of like in a weird way to me parallels uh, Nat King Cole because Nat King Cole was this entertainer. I grew up thinking that Nat King Cole just crooned music. Then when I really got into jazz, I discovered that he was an amazing bebop, just yeah. jazz player. Yeah. And just like Liberace, he was a true musician. You, A lot of people may not know it. You know, they yeah. would think, oh, it's just what they see on TV. No, this guy, these were real musicians, fabulous yeah. musicians. The, the, the man could play, you know. Yeah, yeah. So let me throw a couple of women in there. Okay. Let's see SpaceX. Yeah, very. As Loretta Lynn. Coal yeah. miner's daughter. Yeah. With a great cast. Obviously, we don't have to go into that, Lou. You know the cast in that movie. I think but, that Levon Helm guy's in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Tommy Lee Jones. So. Yeah. Yeah. But she was great as Loretta Lynn. Yeah. Now, I, she, I, she, I, she, Mark, have you seen it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was probably one of the first 
that movie may have gotten me into country. I was very young. Uh, my father got HBO. We were like, ooh, we got HBO. And I saw Coal Miner's Daughter. And I said, country music's good. You know? And yeah. I just said, yeah, yeah. Now, was, it, was that a Michael Apted directed? I think it was. I don't I, know. I think it, he's an Englishman, which is interesting how, you know, the English being so influenced by American rock and roll, you think, you know. Now, I, I might be wrong, so we might have to do a, a relish recap disclaimer next week. But I believe that was Michael Apted. Um, who directed, I think he might have directed Sting's Bring on the Night, too. But he's an English director. To have a, a take on something so quintessentially American shows the appreciation that the English had for, you know, the only thing America's created is, is music. Fantastic. <laughs> and, and, the, and the atomic bomb and nuclear and, 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 and blowing plastic. shit up. Well, Lou, Lou yeah, you're right. right. You're right. Michael Apted did direct Coal Miner's Daughter. Okay, yeah. 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 So, um, has anyone seen hey, Perry? I'm sorry. Now, the, this uh, sissy thing on that movie, I think she did. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a well. I anyway, think, I enjoyed. I, I think she did. Out of the movie. Yeah, no, it, it's it's a great movie, and like we discussed last week, there was some potential best actor Oscar buzz for Levon. Right, he should have gotten it. <laughs> well, well then, then I'm glad you said that because this is a movie I saw. The movie was called. Sweet Dreams in 1985. Jessica Lang played Patsy Cline. Oh, yeah. Did anyone see that movie? Yeah, way, 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 way. Yeah. It was nominated for an Oscar. That's yeah. how it was. Yep. Yeah. Now, Jessica Lang is, I, she's won uh, quite a few, a few Oscars, maybe at least two. Um, but she's a very highly acclaimed actress, too. You know, she's done a lot of stuff, you know. But like I said, she's, I think she's won two Oscars. She played Frances Farmer, I think. I forgot the name of the movie. Um, you know, the actress that was institutionalized and all kinds of horrible things were done, but I believe that was Jessica Lange. Might have won an Oscar for that. But, She's you know. a good actor. She's a great actor. And they, they, these are heavyweights playing these great roles. Sissy Spacek, Jessica well, I have Lange. another one. I, I know, what was the name of the movie where Angela Bassett played Tina Turner? What's Love Got to Do With It? it. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, Mark and I just cancel each other out here. <laughs> Sorry. Wait, wait, hang on. I have something for that. <laughs> I just got boinged by Lou. Sorry, Lou. <laughs> There'll be more, I'm sure. <laughs> Great role, though. Yeah. I, 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 got one. I got one here. What have you got? Okay. The year is 1994. Uh, you guys Beatle fans? Yeah, right. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> Ian Hart as John Lennon in the movie Backbeat. Never saw that movie, and I've always wanted to see it. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't think I, I saw it. I, I said, well, it came out in 94. I, I haven't seen it since it came out, but I've seen it several times. Um, for Beatle fans, it is beautifully nostalgic. It's wonderfully filmed. It's the story of the Beatles before Ringo. It's the story of the, of the friendship between John Lennon and Stu Sutcliffe, as played by Stephen Dorff. Okay. Um, Cheryl Lee plays Astrid Kircher. I don't know who the actor is that plays Klaus Vormann, but they show you know the young Beatles going to Hamburg and meeting Astrid and Klaus Vormann, who is a story unto himself, right? Do we know this? Klaus Vormann? Yes. Yeah. Okay. But um, the thing was, you know, it was one of those movies, not like the Buddy Holly story in retrospect, there were some historical inaccuracies. Paul McCartney had a, a bit of a gripe with it where he said that he liked the portrayal of Stu in particular, as Stephen Dorff as Stu Sutcliffe. But he said that, you know, they took all the rock and roll out of Paul. They made him look like the total softy where, you know, Paul sang Long Tall Sally. Paul sang 
some of those rock and roll songs like no other guy in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, he could do Little Richard better than anybody besides Little Richard. And that's no small feat, you know. Um, but yeah, that was his thing. He said there was a few things were just not quite true, but they did it for artistic license, like the Buddy Holly story. Which I, I do remember hearing that he was not happy with it, but he did. He enjoyed the portrayal of Stephen Dorff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, that's coming from McCartney, but I don't know how it didn't say how, how we felt about the actor that played Lennon. But I, I, to me, from what I've read from the books, because that's all we know, it seemed like a very honest and accurate uh, portrayal. Um, but they did, they did uh, stage ad- adaptations of this in 2010 in Glasgow and 2011 in London with live musicians. So the director, um, Lane Softly, actually brought that to the stage well, well after the movie came out. But for someone who's a Beatles freak like we are, I mean, to me, it's like, this is so cool because there's a scene where they're like bunking somewhere in some back room in a club in Hamburg and Ringo, whoever played Ringo, was sleeping in a bed. And it's like, who's that sleeping in my bed? Well, that's those Richard Starkey, you know, whatever. And that was the little, the only shot of Ringo pre-Beatles. And we all know, we all know Ringo was the drummer that they really wanted and needed and got. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, let me, Ringo. let me ask you. Have have either of you guys seen that movie yesterday? Which no. is okay. It's a bizarre movie. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I'm scared to ask Beatles fans what they think of it. But basically, the plot is a guy gets hit by a bus and he goes into like a parallel universe or no, though something you know where the Beatles never happened, but he still knows the Beatles music. So he creates this great career singing Beatles songs. And uh, Ed Sheeran's in it. You know, he's he's Ed Sheeran in it. But at the very end of the movie, because all the Beatles, the Beatles never were a band. They were just regular. They never just who they were. He finds John Lennon and he's living on the coast. He's a fisherman. The guy that played John Lennon in that role just always struck me. Like it's it's, it's 10 minutes max at the end. But he talks to John Lennon. And that guy, that guy to me was really good. It's just like that's what John would have looked like if he lived, you know. Hmm. Yeah, great movie. Highly recommended. It's like a what if type movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, he feels guilty. You know, he's singing all these Beatles songs. He's world famous. And there's like two other people that are following him that also knew what happened. And he finally says, I didn't write these songs, but he was having like worldwide success doing these songs, you know? So good movie. Has anyone seen a movie called I Saw the Light? Nope. No. I think he's an Englishman. His name is Tom Hiddleston. He played Hank Williams. He, he plays Loki. He's Loki in the Marvel yeah. movies. Yeah. He's who? He Loki. Plays Lo- Loki, the, the god of mischief in the Marvel movies from the, from the Thor series. Oh, oh, oh. Um, and if you're Thor, how do you think I feel? <laughs> he played, I, I saw him, he played Hank Williams. It, it was really good. Wow. Yeah. I could see him doing that. Okay. Well, why, why don't we touch upon, uh, upon a few more and move on? I got one of David Carradine playing Woody Guthrie in Bound for Glory in 1976. Great movie. Uh, I, I, know, I, I, I saw it way back. Um, they said it was, you know, beautifully filmed. It's apparently the cinematography is amazing. You know, again, most of the characters besides him are fictitious, but that was done to propel the narrative of, of the story. Um, but, yeah, David Carradine, interesting guy from an interesting acting family. Mm-hmm. Um, but you kill Bill. But, um, you know, playing something back then, you know, a mainstream movie about a, you know, Woody Guthrie, you know, basically a socialist protest singer, you know. Um, yeah, up in a bunch yeah, of uh, factories. That, that, yeah, yeah that, that would be an art house movie now because it would not be a mainstream movie. Right. 
it had it actually had acting. <laughs> well, also the, the the political content, really. You know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very this good. Land movie. is your land. Yeah. I've got Can't one. sing that song. I've got one from an actor I really like. Um, the the uh, movie was called Beyond the Sea. Kevin Spacey playing Bobby Darren. Yeah. Anyone see that one? Yes, I did. Great. He's really. I like Kevin Spacey. He's really yeah. good. He's a great actor. He can also sing. He can. Yeah. Yeah. But Bobby Darren was an interesting character. He always had a premonition of his own death. He had a heart condition. He was like thirty six when he died. Was it yeah. Seven. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Go ahead. Uh, does anyone know who Andre Benjamin is? Nope. His, well, he's, I, I guess as a musician, he's known as Andre 3000. You ever see the oh. movie um, Get Shorty? I didn't. With Johnny Travolta? Danny DeVito? And Danny DeVito. Well, they made a second one. It was called Be Cool. And uh, in, in Be Cool, Andre Benjamin was, and he played a character called Dabu. Well, anyway, he played Jimi Hendrix in a movie, and he was really good. Did they actually make that movie? I I never saw that. Last I heard, they were they were making it. He was supposed to play uh, Jimmy in a biopic, but oh, he made it. They made that a couple of years ago. And and as I understand, I didn't see it, but they the the Jimi Hendrix estate didn't approve of it, so they went ahead and made it, but they didn't get the rights to any of Jimmy's music. So it's you're not going to hear any Jimmy's music. But I got to see that movie. I've heard it's very good. Did did the estate of did the the estate of my father's friend Ed Chopin? Um, who can, I can't say his name. Um, did, did he get anything out of it? Because I could get sued for saying that. Because he, he, he finagled a piece of Hendrix's ass in 1967 and got money out of his estate until the family sued him out of it righteously. Wow. Yeah. I'm I, I've just got a couple more. One, a couple of biggies, of course. I got a couple too. Right, wrap so it up. Come on. Let, let, let's wrap no, it up. I got a few, man. You can't well, forget. We, can, we got a few more minutes. Go ahead. All right. We're only at 30. Wait, wait. I, I just got outvoted. Okay, you guys. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead, Mark. <laughs> Me? Oh, okay. Jeff Bridges at his Otis Bad Blake in Crazy Heart. You guys ever see that? No, no. Wonderful, um, wonderful portrayal of a country artist on the decline and uh, – Throwing up in the hotel room, drunk as a skunk, showing up at the shows. You'd see it, yeah. Oh, it's great. Very good. He sang in and it. And he really played and sang and wrote some songs, right? And Perry, who played the young hot shot country artist that he kind of was partners with? Um, oh, I saw once. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't remember. Yeah, I can't remember the guy's name. He's an English actor. Very good actor. But I uh, loved it because it was a good portrayal of a – just a country troubadour playing bowling alleys and shit and just going around the country and one night stands and all that stuff. Great movie. Do you know what trumps all of this? One actor who trumps all of what we discussed in one role? What's that? Um, (laughs) 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 The Dewey Cox. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Walk hard. (laughs) Walk hard. Yep. And, and there were a few actors that played the Beatles in that movie. Paul Rudd played John Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man, uh, I forgot the actor's name. Was it Michael C. Riley? What's his name? No, that's my. I've got John. Name. John it's C. Riley. Yeah. Now, the, now the birds. The birds have a song dedicated to him. Did you know that? No. On the <laughs> on the Fifth Dimension record from 1966, they have a song called John Riley. It's a, it's an old traditional folk song. It's a great song, but every time I hear it, I can slip in the C. So I can you can slip in John C. Riley on it. Do they uh, say shake and bake? 
Shake and bake, maybe. <laughs> I've been halved. <laughs> I just want to throw in two more that I don't like, in fact. This guy, Rami Malek, who played Freddie Mercury. Didn't see it. I didn't like the movie. I, well, I, didn't like the, I didn't like the Elton John movie. I thought it was okay. Rocket Man, but I wasn't like, what? I didn't like that either. I thought it was all right. I, but I wasn't, you know, I was and, never and that, more. I didn't even like Val Kilmer playing Jim Morrison. He was good. I mean, yeah, he was good. He was but, fine in it. Oh, the, whole, the whole cast was great. I don't know. I disagree. Well, you know, can I circle back real quick on Rami Malek? Sure. I'm a big Freddie fan. Fred, I Two artists died. I cried. One of them was Freddie. I thought Rami did him justice, even though the original choice for that role would have been better. But they screwed up the time. I can't forgive the writers, but it was with the blessing of Brian May and Roger Taylor. Live Aid was not their last concert. You know, it was like, what the hell? After that, they had two more huge world tours. But that's Hollywood. You know, you screw up. You know, you just make everything dramatic, you know. But um, yeah, so for that reason, yeah, I didn't like it. But uh, that that wasn't necessary. Nah, you know, uh, they wanted to make a bang. They wanted to make an impact, and they yeah. realized that most of the masses didn't give a shit. Uh, they they probably didn't want to dwell on on Freddie's AIDS, the problem with the AIDS, kind of his health falling apart. They wanted to keep it. This this movie really was to just revitalize the interest in Queen, and it worked because Queen albums started selling again after the movie came out. And I think it was just like, yeah, it's like if Disney did a Queen movie, it would have been that movie. Did, did they remiss with a crappy drum production on those? They, you, you know what? As a mastering engineer, Lou, I could tell you, and you know it too, you can't get rid of distortion. No. Mark, <laughs> I, I, you're a mastering engineer. I'm a frustrated producer. I think you'd be a really good producer. I, I, don't, I don't have the technical know-how. I got the ears, but I don't have the technical know-how. Well, it takes patience too. You know? it takes, like my dad said, Lou, you got to be smart to do that. <laughs> Did well, anyone, did anyone see Jamie Foxx play Ray? Um, yeah, Ray. Yeah, Ray Charles. I've seen some of it. Um, how about um, um, uh, who's the guy who played um, James Brown in the, the Marvel movies? He just Chadwick died. Boseman. Yeah, Chadwick Boseman. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. pretty good as well. Yeah. Apparently, Kurt Russell played Elvis in a TV movie <laughs> series in 1979. <laughs> it was good. I didn't see it, but I, I I know he's you know he's one of those Elvis guys. Yeah, he was better than Andy Kaufman. <laughs> <laughs> nobody was better than Andy. No, 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 nobody was. The first time, the first time I saw Andy Kaufman. Hello. What the hell was that? That was a laugh track. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I saw Andy Kaufman was on uh, SNL when he did the whole. Mighty Mouse and the Elvis thing. You're like, who the hell is this guy? This is bizarre. It's funny. Though. You know, the first time I saw him was on. Do you remember, Lou? Do you remember that show Fridays? It was like yes. ABC's, and he came on and he was supposed to introduce the pretenders. So they're in the back with a curtain down, and he comes out and he goes like, "I'm supposed to introduce the pretenders, but I want to protest this show." He took up their whole spot. They couldn't play. Chrissy Hind. I don't know if it was all set up, but Chrissy Hine, I thought she was going to hit him with her guitar. She, she probably like, should have. Because that was, pretenders were up and coming then. Yeah. And, uh, he did, and I was pissed, and I'm like 10 years old, and I'm like, what the hell? I want to see the pretenders, you know? Yeah. I mean, it seems like he took that shtick too far. Um, you know, there's a scene in Man on the Moon where that whole famous scene where there's, there's a fight during the skit because he's just going against 
everything. And, you know, in retrospect, you give credits for originality, but, you know, he was, he, he was, he was effing with you, you know, which is kind of cool. I mean, I, you know, I, I like that rebellious spirit. There were, you know, I think Lenny Bruce right now with a lot of comedy or lack of is spinning in his grave because of things you cannot do now. Comedy was about being edgy, about pushing envelopes. You can't push any envelopes anymore, it seems. That's um, right. But, but and he pushed some envelopes. And but at the same time, you know, if I was sharing the stage with him, whatever, I'd be a little bummed out. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's a weird call. But the guy was a genius and he was friggin' funny. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, let me throw in a couple more quick hits. I did not see Diana Ross play Billie Holiday in Lady Sings the Blues. Hmm, no. But Roger Daltrey played Franz Litz. Listomania. Listomania. And who was the guy who played Amadeus? Uh, he was good. very good. He was great. He was good. Yeah. No, F. Murray Abraham was in that. Yes. He played. He played Deck Composer. He played the South Sartori. Yeah. He played yeah. Uh, San, the Great Santini. No, that was, that was Robert <laughs> Duvall. Wait, who who played Amadeus? Was, was uh, it wasn't Stephen Dorff? It was like I do not, of, can't remember his name, but he he, yeah. he did a great job in it. Yeah. Well, you know Brad, what's you know what's funny? Brad Dorff. That's Dorf. no. No. No, no, no. Um, dollar. No. Oh, okay. Um, how do you spell Amadeus? A M M A D E U S, something like that. Okay. I'm looking it up. But you know it's funny, the, the composer the composer that, that F. Murray Abraham played that was just lived his whole life jealous of Mozart. Yeah. yeah. When I was when I was working at CPI, um in the cassette place, you know, we did classical releases they released all his music his music was actually pretty good but yeah. i'm sure he's looking down from above and going every the cover of all the releases of his albums showed scenes from amadeus like you'd see wow. Mozart yeah. on the cover so they because they were trying to sell it you know it was the even amadeus in depth, yeah. but he was, he was a pop star he was a pop star back then amadeus i, I think the guy's name was barzini <laughs> I did not see Jay oh, Lo played Selena. I did not see that. And, uh, but wait, Forrest Whitaker playing oh, her. Excellent. Yeah. I was yeah. going to bring that up. Uh, and he, you know who directed it? Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. Yeah. And Forrest Whitaker's brooding on the edge acting, which I love, was perfect. Perfect for, for Bird. That was a really good movie. And he to me, he looked authentic playing that saxophone. Now I'm not a saxophone player, so I don't know, but he looked he fit the part. All right, so um, where do we want to go from here? Oh, one more, one more mention. Wow, I'm gonna kill you. Two more mentions, Perry. This one's gonna <laughs> kill you. Mark Wahlberg and Rockstar. Sorry, I love yeah, that come movie. On. Oh, come on, <laughs> but it's, it's a fictitious character. Hold on, hold on, hold on. No, no, no. Hang on a second, guys. <laughs> well. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. The movie was stupid. He was vain. That describes <laughs> that describes heavy metal in the 80s. It was like that. Oh, yeah, you know? sure that's was. all it was. Yeah. And he also loosely was based on Judas Priest, you know, that you know, <laughs> Ripper Owens, you know. So, yeah. The other one, come on, we didn't bring it up. The thing that you do. I thought those guys did a great yeah, job they, in the they, band. Yes, they, they did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. they did. Yep. Yeah. I'm well, out. Also, the fact, that, the fact that the drummer made that band, by the way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just saying. 
Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> Are you done, Mark? <laughs> I'm all done. You don't have to bing my ear anymore. <laughs> oh, there's going to be more, I'm sure. <laughs> there oh, you go. What the hell was so, that? So remember, remember when uh, we were talking about, uh, I was talking about Van Morrison last week where he recorded 30 songs in one day. Yeah. To get out of his contract. I want to play a few seconds of one if one of his songs called Just Ball. Just Ball. That's the whole song. Just Ball. Out of tune. Just Ball. Just Ball. That's the whole song. <laughs> but he sounds great. <laughs> but, no, he, but he proved his point to get out did. of that contract. Right. I'll record crap. And also, that term is a slang term for you know what. Yes. Yes. Yep. Uh, that that kind of died out in the mid seventies, but this was what sixty seven eight. Yeah. That, that he did the right songs. Go. I want to ball you. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. I'm really offended, guys. I didn't know that this show. I I don't know if I can continue to do this. There hasn't yeah, there hasn't been one f bomb been thrown in here. Perry's. Perry's laying on the smut. Okay. Right, so let, let me throw in one more thing. There's um who do you think the top four bands are that had more golden platinum albums in a row? You can probably guess who like the top ones are. First it was the first it was the Beatles, right? This is this is the more golden platinum albums in a row. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Aerosmith. Who do you think number four is? Zebra. Def Leppard. Rush. Rush. Really? I don't know. Yep. Get out. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Good. Amazing. Rush. They have sold sold many out. Rush, I guess, were were a lot of ways, but maybe a guilty pleasure for a lot of people. That, you know, I bet bet a lot of girls, too. I bet you they have a million, three million girlfriends that just don't want to say so. I think also Rush was an escape for a lot of the boyfriends. They had to listen to their girlfriend's music. Now, Rush was really cool. So it's like when they got away from the girlfriends, they were listening to Rush. They were always cool. Yeah, they were the best. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. Yep. Yep. Now, I, 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 now? Uh, how about, uh, I got to, how about, um, well, Rush, oh, Canada. So now we're talking about, you know, Canadian. There's so many notable musicians in the rock and roll world who come from Canada. Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Rush, Gordon Lightfoot. Uh, there's, there's a whole bunch, but there's a lot of lesser-known Canadian bands. So it seems like Canada, I mean, that's a country that's so huge, been described as the, as, in terms of America, as the nice, quiet apartment above the meth lab that is America. Um, <laughs> the kinder, gentler society that we don't have. But there's so many lesser-known Canadian bands that, you know, they're, they're rock and roll war, war horses, touring bands that maybe every once in a while cracked into the top 40 or the top whatever in America. Um, so I'm going to name one, since we're talking about Rush, a band called Max Webster. Oh, yeah. Great yeah. band. Yep. I got turned on to them by my friend Rob Littower, who turned me on to Rush when I wanted to become a, a better drummer and find out, you know, like what I could do. And uh, Max Webster, that's not the name of the band, but it, it was basically the main guy in Max Webster is a man named Kim Mitchell, a guitarist, vocalist, and not the main songwriter. They had, throughout the years, they had different songwriters throughout. They scored some hits. I don't think they had, they never had a hit in America, but in Canada they did, but they were a touring workhorse band. Um, they opened up, actually, the name came from, here's an interesting Genesis tie-in. 
Uh, I guess the original bass player's name was Kim, uh, wait, uh, Mike uh, Tilka, but he was in a band with Daryl Sturmer. Mark, I think you know that name. Oh, yeah. Uh, he is the guitar player. He's been Phil Collins' guitar player for years, the touring yep. guitar player for Genesis forever. Uh, a great player, but they were in a band together called uh, Family at Max, but Daryl Sturmer wrote a song about, you know, like inspired by a, a writer named Ben Webster. It was called, you know, Tribute to Webster, but you know, probably some weird moment they came with the name Max Webster. So the name of this band was inspired by the bass player and the guitar player of Genesis and Phil Collins, Daryl Sturmer. But, you know, I, I listen to this stuff. It's kind of, it's progressive with touches of folk, new wave and stuff, but eccentric, weird time signatures. But, you know, musicianship seems to be the core of a lot of these bands. You know, Rush is known as, you know, they're musicians. These guys can play the hell out of their instruments. Um but they opened up for everybody. They opened up for BPO, Blondie, The Cars, Genesis, and Peter Gabriel, The Straubs. Um, I, I was getting something. I said, if Adrian Ballou was in a Canadian band, he could have been in, in Max Webster. Agreed. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, there, 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 there's, a, there's an element of accessibility, but it's just it, it's weird. There's something out there. Just If you're into that left field type of stuff, you know, kind of alternative sorts, but definitely not a, of the mainstream. But it's interesting how a band like that can go on and on and on for 30, 50 years and a lot of people don't know them, but they have a, a solid fan base. But, you know, something worth checking out. Um, you know, the music's interesting. I'm not a, I wouldn't say I'm a big fan, but I found some of it interesting. And at the time, too, I'm like, this is, this is kind of cool. You know, it was a time when you know, I was looking for something in music less obvious, you know, besides boom, crack, boom, crack, you know. But, yeah, yeah, Max Webster. Some of the lyrics were written by a man named, I don't know if it's a man, Pai Dubois. Who also worked with Neil Peart and Rush and some stuff, uh, a lyricist yeah. and a writer. Yeah, yeah, and they they uh, they they open for Rush quite a bit. They oh yeah, band. Um, you know what they remind me of, Lou? Back yeah. in that time period, you would go to a bar. Like people that liked music back in that time period would go to a bar, say, "I'm going to get drunk, I'm going to drink, and like a band like Max Webster." Huh. Which would be a little off the wall, but they liked yeah. it. You know what I mean? People appreciated yeah. music, you know? And they, yeah. in turn, might buy a CD and pass it on to someone else who is saying, you know, I like this. I like Bad Company, but, you know, there's something else missing. I want something else quirky, whatever. Um, that's how I discovered Blue Oyster Cult. Besides, like, Don't Fear the Reaper, they had other songs that weren't quite so classic rock when someone slipped secret treaties to me. I'm like, well, they wrote a song called Dominance and Submission. That's pretty interesting, you know? Um, but that's you know, that's how that that was you know, definitely groundswell, boots on the ground support back then in the seventies and early eighties because there was no internet. Um, you had to go to that damn record store and order some order some cassettes and records. You had to go to the cranky guy at that record store in Westwood and hope he was in a good mood. And, and hope, hopefully know? the conspiracy theories weren't flowing too far. Oh, <laughs> wait, I'm, I'm getting political in a very non-political way, so I'm moving on. Stop, stop, because I'm you'll done. get me political and then we're in trouble, so stop. So, so what yeah, are we talking good. about, Canadian bands? Yeah. Let's let, let triumph. Oh, triumph. Oh, triumph. Rick Emmett, one yeah. of my idols. Gilmore. I you know, Mark's been telling me about them for a long time, but I just started watching a couple documentaries about them, and it's like, wow, they were really good. They were yeah. Really... Hey, Perry. Uh, hey, what? Uh, who was on bass with Triumph? Oh, cousin It from, <laughs> <laughs> from the Adams family. <laughs> like he had, he had the best line in rock and roll. I want to know one thing tonight. I want to know one thing. 
are you ready to rock? I've seen Triumph like 10 times, and that's his line. That's his line. All I can say is don't try that in Portugal, because you get stuff thrown at you. <laughs> and, and nobody, else, nobody in the history of rock has ever said, you, are you ready to rock? <laughs> the Blue Earth Gold had a song on Spectre's album called R, R the capital R, uh, the capital U, ready to rock. So they were doing that stuff before anybody else. Yeah. And it's also on your feet or on your knees, Lou. Oh man, blue oyster cult. Yeah. You you know what? Triumph in a way because like when I was in high school, we a lot of us like Triumph, but then you had the Rush fans. I called them the Kmart Rush. Oh. But you know what I said? All right, because they were comparing Neil Peart to Gilmore. Gilmore was a more basic drummer. Basically, in Triumph, Rick Emmett was their version of Neil Peart. Like he was a virtuoso. Yeah, um, Rick Emmett. When I started to play guitar, he had a column in Guitar Player, which was the magazine for every guitarist. Yes, he did. Yeah, and he taught me something because I really love jazz. And he would say jazz isn't as hard as you think it is, and he would always give the simple things or bluegrass. He'd say, "Here's a simple jazz lick," and because of him, I could play some jazz songs. I could play some bluegrass. Then he branched down into the politics of being in a band. He would start saying like, all right, if you join a band and they ask you to be like a second guitarist, here's how you're going to handle it. So he was like a true teacher. He's amazing. Just a, a great guy. Well, what I discovered from watching their couple documentaries on them is that Gilmore was a kind of a singing drummer. Yeah. And but this guy, Rick Emmett, they, they played the Us Festival. I saw them play the Us Festival 1983, maybe. It was mm -hmm. over 400,000 people there. Yeah. And Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple, apparently started that or something. Yeah. And um, Rick Emmett asked Steve, would you want to introduce us? And, and Steve Wozniak is like, yeah. So I saw it on there and, you know, Steve Wozniak's up there and he doesn't introduce me. He's just, you know, he's just there. But he came up and he goes, ladies and gentlemen, triumph and... And anyway, 400,000 people, this guy was leaping about the stage, this guy, Rick Emmett. But after after they did, a, you know, however many songs, he sat on the edge of the stage in front of over 400,000 people. And he just played his guitar and he was playing like Bach on his uh, on his guitar, finger picking. Yeah. And he entertained all those people by himself. You know, the band went back to do whatever they had to do. And he was sitting there on the edge of the stage by yeah. himself entertaining uh, almost a half a million people yep he so. had he had a spot in every concert where they would do their song rock and roll machine and then it would he would do a 10 minute guitar solo unaccompanied and it was the to me it was the equivalent of neil Peart's drum solo because there were certain sections that he never removed that he always did but he would start with rock then he would you know, do all the flashy stuff then he would do jazz mm -hmm. then he would do a little classical but Nobody left to get a beer. Like the whole arena was there watching a guitar solo. Just like when you know Pert does his drum solo, nobody leaves. They watch. Yeah, the guys. Yeah. And there were a lot That's of girls really at the Triumph shows. <laughs> well, later on when they got commercial, there were a lot of girls at the Triumph shows. So. Yeah. Now, I, I always liked uh, Gilmore's voice. Me too. I think the first initial hits from them were like sung by Rick Emmett. Um, but there was, I remember in the mid, maybe mid to late 80s, there were a couple more rock songs, rocking songs that Gilmore sang. And he was a very good vocalist as well. Like you said, more of a basic hard rock, rock and roll drummer. Absolutely. But, That's what and, I got. And maybe not a fair to compare him to Neil Peart, because it's not fair to compare anyone to him, as far as I'm concerned, just because you're from Canada. But, um, but yeah, apparently they were all tight. 
Yeah. And I think MTV helped a lot of these bands uh, get around. You know, for example, like <clears throat> Saga and April Wine. Yeah. Saga. Tonight we're on the loose. <laughs> Saga are great. They were a great band. Or they opened for us. Yeah. Now, were they progress? I guess they were a progressive band, but at that time, you know, in the early '80s, a lot of bands were, you know, kind of straightening their sound out and making things more beat friendly. Mm. But, I, but I remember the video for that song. I remember the drummer, Steve Negus. I just remember that name for some reason, it just stuck in my head. But uh, it was just, you know, our friend Scott Mitter from Knoxville is a fan. He actually mentioned to me, he goes, "Don't forget Saga because I might have." So we got to send send a uh, send props out to Scott Mitter in Knoxville for saying. Don't forget Saga, but he knows more of their albums than we do. And one day we're going to get him on this podcast, whether he likes it or not. He's going to hear this. You know what? Um, I got to tell you, Sat's a fan, and so is Tom Spallone. He's a okay. huge fan of Saga. Well, well, check it out. I mean, they, they were number 22. Like That album um, that on the loose, you know, it was a top 40 hit. It was number 25 in the U.S., 22 in Canada. Yeah. That's something that got them. That, but that's all people know of Saga. They know nothing before and after, as I do, I got to say. Right, so, and of so, course they have you know the Canadian the Canadian Hall of Fame, and they have their you know yeah. has a lot of their own uh, a lot of their own um, awards and you know Juno yeah. awards and music awards and all that. They also have the uh, they, they have award called the Sappy. You know what that is? No, for all oh. the maple all the maple sap that comes out of the trees. So if you were a Sappy, I think you're number one in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lou. You mentioned April Wine. That's another good band. I mean, they were more of a straightforward rock band, but yeah. they have, uh, I can't, to Gypsy Kiss, I think that song. That a was sign, sign of the Gypsy Queen, which was not written oh. by them. It was written by a man named Jonathan Hudd, but they had a song called this, Just Between You and Me. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. That, that was a ballad. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, they were good. I mean, good. Uh, the guy's a great singer, but uh, that, that, um, Sign of the Gypsy Queen in 1981, 82. I knew so many local bands in Parkers, New Jersey, that wanted to play that song. Like, that was almost like playing a heart song. You know, a lot of people liked it. It was kind of unknown. You know, it was just like, who, who is this band? But it, it was very catchy. But you know, yeah, I just wonder when we were kids, like, if anybody knew that the Guess Who were Canadian, that Gordon Lightfoot was Canadian, yeah, that you know Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and Joni. whoever else was the band. You know, a, a lot of them don't think of that. They, you know, maybe they don't even read the record. And yeah, you find out where they're from or where well, it was recorded. Or, yeah, you know, when someone finds out that I uh, guess who were Canadian, then they really understand American Woman. <laughs> that yeah, point. exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's an anti-American song. Yeah. <laughs> Anti-Vietnam. I don't need your war machine. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, I got a band from Canada that I don't know if you guys have heard of, but either of you ever hear of Voivod? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, like, I yeah. have. I so, have. Through, through, they were uh, through the Calico family, I've heard. No, of no, it. that was through the governor. The governor? Yeah. Our so friend, what the about Voivod? They're, they're, they're almost like a progressive, very progressive they, almost. They started as a speed metal band, but what I liked about them, and there's, do you ever hear, do you guys ever hear Black Flag, Greg Ginn, the guitar player? Black Flag were like, if you took, if King Crimson got into hardcore music, that would be. Black Flag. Um, uh, Henry Rollins was the singer for for uh, Black yeah, Flag. Greg Ginn was a very dissonant raw guitar player. So Voivod, the the uh, the guitar player, I uh, can't remember his name, but his nickname was Piggy. Um, he kind of had those chords, those real. So they were doing speed metal, but they were doing weirdly weird stuff. But then they got out of the speed metal thing, and they they were progressive, and they they covered Astronomy Domini 
Dominine from uh, Pink Floyd, and they did. I loved it. I, it's like, I like it as much as the original. Yeah, they in it, Northern Quebec. They're from you know up there. It's kind of a weird band, and they're still together, and they're still. Uh, Piggy died, you know, uh, but they're still slogging it out. They're still playing. Hmm. Band. No, that was a good one. I've heard of them, but I would never, never guess that off the top of my head. Think about Voivod. Yeah, well, the, you know, the part of me that likes King Crimson likes Voivod. Kind of okay. like that. Oh, nobody's going to like this song, so I like it. <laughs> so much for Canada. How about that? And Perry's opening a beer, I hear. Is that what that is? Yeah, I think so. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Oh. <laughs> Voivod. <laughs> <laughs> Voivod. So, so who else? Who else are big bands from Canada? Oh, uh, you got Red Rider. Yes. Yeah, Tom, Finch, yeah. Tom Cochran, yeah. Yeah, he's a monster in Canada. And you know something? The song Lunatic, Lunatic Fringe. Wow. Yeah. That yeah. song was, it was written about Hitler's Germany, but maybe not completely. <laughs> now, I also, I, I also heard a little bit back then that, like, um, that who's the guy Tom Cochran? Life is a highway. Yeah, I, I heard yeah. that was almost there was almost going to be a legal issue with Train in Vain by the Clash. Really? Yeah. Well, that, that was also that was also covered by uh, a country singer for one of the Pixar movies, the Pixar Cars movie. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know who did it, but it's, it's a good version. But um, Lunatic Friends. One thing I like about that song, I, I like the material, I like the message, I love that recording. I, Me I don't, too. I don't, I, I don't know who produced it, but when that came out in like eighty eighty one. That had such a great sound on the radio. I mean, that was made. That song was made to come out of your car speakers in your in, in your in your car. It was, I have to tell you, when I first heard it, I thought it was Pink Floyd. Why not? Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah. You know that that intro where you hear the keyboard going. Yeah, yeah. That gave me the goosebumps, kind of like the opening to um, uh, "Funeral for a Friend" from Elton John, where you hear the bells. Yeah. That stuff gives you like goosebumps. Yeah. Great. Can, and the whole album is good. It's very good. As far as Siam is the album, it's a great album. I can tell you the first time where I was when I heard that song. Where I were was, you? I, I was living at my parents' house in Park Ridge, Park Ridge, New Jersey. I was about to take a shower, and I brought my little portable radio into the bathroom to listen to music while I shower, and I heard that song, Lunatic Fringe, and I was like, I like this. This is cool. The drumming's, drumming's I like the sound of the tom-toms. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that was, I'm not sure what what I was not liking or like, I, th I think at that time I was listening to like Blizzard of Oz a lot and thinking this is a really shitty sounding recording. And then hearing, <laughs> then hearing that song saying, that's what the drums are supposed to sound like. They don't sound fake. I was not into that early eighties overproduced sound. And sometimes, I mean, Phil Collins had that thing going in the air tonight, but that took some things to a wrong direction. I think where the drums just sounded so artificial, but that song had a real big, fat, rich, yeah. realistic, drum sound like i would like my drum set to sound like that do you know yeah. who played bass on uh in the air tonight by phil collins uh it was not it was not leland squar it was leland squar really yep wow man yep. that goes so he was doing that back then yep well i have a dvd oh, i have a dvd of phil collins in germany on the uh but seriously tour with leland squar in the band that band was scary good well, i mean sure. Yeah. Oh, shit. And Leland Sklar with Toto? Holy 
cow. He was just he's playing the heavier stuff and he's playing real fast, you know. It's fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I saw a clip of Leland Scar or uh, Sklar and you know he has a he has a little uh his little YouTube channel or whatever. And I guess because of the COVID, you know, he couldn't do much. But anyway, he's there and he's got his bass out. And he's got the Phil Collins playing in the background there tonight. And there he is. He's playing the riff. Boom, boom, boom. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And he's playing the riff. I'm like, wow. Yeah. So you said, no, it, it couldn't have been Leland. Yeah, it was Leland Sklar. Okay. On the record. On the record. How, how, how about a segue here? Toto. Uh-huh. Before they were Toto, they're the, not all of them, but a good deal of them were the backup band on an album by a guy we were discussing, talking about tonight. Peter Shuffle. Yeah, 1976. Yeah. Bill Degrees, Bob Skaggs. Love that album. Love Wait a minute. So the guy, the guitar player who was in Toto, what's his name? Steve Lukather, I don't think he's on the album. Is he? No, he was too young. He was too young. Okay. Well, Jeff Ricard was 18. How old how old was Lukather back then? Lukather was a Lukather was a teenager. He grew up with Page and, and Pacero, but they were like the big musicians in the neighborhood, and Picaro he thought he 18. could never be with them. Okay. So, yeah, he was probably like 15 or 16 at the time. Okay. So these were the guys post-Wrecking Crew. Yeah. Well, I, well, Jeff Ricard was – well, I mean, he might have been the Hal Blaine of the 70s and 80s when you think about it, because if you look at his discography and his bio, he's credited with playing on a lot of the, a lot of the songs that shaped – the sound of the '80s. Don Henley's "Dirty Laundry," Jackson Brown's "The Pretender," um, Bruce Springsteen's "He's on the Human Touch" record, <clears throat> mm-hmm. Gary Malibur from um, well, Sea Biller Band for one thing, and many others is the drummer on the Lucky Town record, which is the better record. Um, but Jeff Percaro was a monster, monster studio player. But I think um, on Silk Degrees, it's Percaro, Page, and the bass player Hun- Huntinger or something. David, I don't know his name. David Hungay, and he <laughs> does that. Um, the lowdown, he does that, but boot that great bass line. He's, okay. he's fantastic, yeah. <clears throat> nice, but um, yeah, just the fact. I mean, as young as they were, because you know, Boss Gags, as we know, you know, he was a he had a solo a solo deal going for many years. You know, limited success. He was in the Steve Miller band in the late '60s. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know what albums he's on, but I don't think he did anything like you might say. Hey, that's Boss Gags on the Steve Miller record, but he sang some leads on stuff. But he was a rhythm guitar player. But that record was like that was a cross between like the Silk Degrees was a cross between like disco and rock R and B, you know it was in seventy six that's that's the disco era, and it could kind of qualify as such. I mean, um, uh, what's the song? Lowdown. It was yacht. It was yacht rock. When right. Was, when was the Lido? Well, yeah, yes, it is. It was the Lido Now shuffle. it's yacht rock. What, what's that? The Lido Shuffle. What year was that? Seventy six. Yeah. Dude, that was that long ago. Yeah. Wow. Dirty Lowdown, Lido Shuffle. I remember the heroes on the radio. Yep. They're, they're on the same record. Uh, that in Georgia. I always like that song, Lido Shuffle. I like that. I always like yeah. that. And uh, if, you listen to, if you listen to the drums, he's he's doing that thing. Yeah, I think I was Jeff Picaro was a monster, but so that who's the guitar, who's the drummer? Jeff Picaro on that one? Jeff Picaro yeah. on the album, yeah. And then um there's another album song on that album called Harbor Lights, which is real moody, but he did yeah. a song on that album called We're All Alone. If you listen to it, you'll go, I know that song because he recorded it, but it was re-recorded by an R and B singer, can't remember her name. Rita Coolidge. Yeah. Great song. There you go, Lou. <laughs> Lou, you're making me cry. Don't don't uh, do it. You're making me cry. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Wait, are you telling me there was a yacht rock artist who had a song called Harbor Lights? 
Wow. <laughs> Perry, that, that was pre, pre-Yacht Rock. They didn't call it that in 76. But um, I, I think he's up there. He's one of the preeminent, rock, yeah, I guess, Yacht Rock artists, like Steely Dan. But, you know, but it, it's not a term of denigration. It's just a certain era and a certain sound. But um, it's funny because I heard the um, Rita Coolidge version first. And then I said, well, that's a Boss Skaggs, uh, Skaggs song. But um, it's funny because I have a couple pop culture references. Um, when Louis, for, <laughs> uh, my son Louis likes Family Guy. So, uh, so we're, do I. We're, we're hearing Boss Skaggs on the radio. He goes, he sounds like Cleveland from Family Guy. <laughs> 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 and he <laughs> and, uh, and there's an episode of Breaking Bad where uh, Walter, Skyler, and Walter Jr. sit around the breakfast table. And, Wal- and Walter's trying to relate to Junior about music. And he goes, you know, some of the music we grew up with, some great. He goes, you know, Steely Dan, the musicianship was great. He goes, Boss Skaggs, great songs. And Scully goes, Boss Skaggs, really? <laughs> <laughs> and and well, Walter Junior just doesn't give a shit. He's just, I don't, whatever. He's like, but the, the fact that, you know, Walter is so sincere in mentioning, you know, and, but. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's, a, that's the great thing about what we discuss. In other words, like, Mark, you you listen to a Bob Sk- Boz Gags album. I know two songs by Boz Gags, and that's probably the only two songs I'm ever going to know. You know more. How about this one? It's over. It's over now. Can't you get it through your head? It's over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but my point is this: there, you know, there's so much room out there. There's so much space out there for all of these things. You know, between my ears, there's a lot of space. Let's leave it at that. You know? <laughs> Oh, it's, yeah, Perry, an, Perry. it's an endless plateau, isn't it? <laughs> Perry, you know, it's funny because like when I met you at the laundromat, like, you know, we're working at the laundromat. I came up with all this stuff I knew and you introduced me to a whole new, you know, Jay Farrar and all that, which we'll talk about next week. But you introduced me like I never heard of this stuff. I remember you laugh. You almost laughed at me when I said I never heard of Wilco. No, <laughs> never heard of him. <laughs> well, the thing is, I, I used to, uh, you know, like when you always you always used to tell me about Toto. And I used to go, well, Toto, Toto. I used to go, you know, but, you know, you know like there's you no know, place like home. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but the, the guys are talented, man. You know, like wow. You know, when you realize, like you guys are saying, Jeff Picaro playing drums and you know, like wow. Yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah. Uh, Mark, no Aside from point, Toto. Mark, Mark, you sent me a video of Toto playing something. This was years ago, five maybe more. And I'm like whoa i mean i knew they were good i mean i knew they were players you can't be in a band like that and not have a certain caliber but i was just like damn okay well you know it's it's, if you read uh steve lukather's autobiography he basically says we were always a rock band that wanted to be like fusion they wanted to like show their chops you know like doing all that but they were always kept in that pop mold which was great because they wrote great songs but um the last tour i saw them on they did a little acoustic set and then they had fun because Lukather would go like it was a chance for um, the keyboardist, uh, Picaro's brother, Mike Picaro. Yeah. He would say yeah, like, they would get to like show what they've done outside of Toto. So I forgot that that Mike Picaro wrote Human Nature. So he said, yeah, I wrote this little ditty. My daughter was at the playground at school and a kid that liked her hit her or pushed her off the swing set. And she said, Dad, I thought he liked me. Why did he push me off the swing set? And he said. That's human nature. And then they played a little of the song. Then wow. David Page played a few songs that, like, it's not just for Boz Gags. David Page wrote 
a huge amount of songs in the yeah. disco era that were great songs, you That's know? Right. Yeah. And you're sitting there and you're listening. And I brought my son-in-law to Kenna and he, he was like, Oh my God, they had a hand in all these songs. I'm like, yeah, yeah. it's amazing. You know? And how did uh, uh, Jeff Picaro die? Um, the, 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 the story goes, according to the band that he died as a result. It was, he had a heart attack. He was 38. Um, he died as a result of mixing pesticides. He was working on his lawn. They said it was a pesticide reaction. Two coroners have had things. One coroner said that it was a result. The pesticides played a role, but he had uh, long-term abuse from, uh, long-term heart damage from abuse of substances. And he was a smoker. I got pictures of him playing drums and smoking, which to me, as a drummer with asthma, just seems insane. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, you know, what's uh, wrap your head in saran wrap and try to play like a drum solo. But, well, perhaps we can do a tribute to, unfortunately, all these dead yeah. drums. It, it's very contentious and you know who knows the, the band as uh, as well as they should they, they're trying to protect their fallen brother no know? but i mean you know other than jeff picaro uh, yeah but it's a loss of a great talent at the age of 38 yeah. i think one, one of the last things he did was bruce springsteen's human touch record hmm. um and it's funny here's a little side note um and here's where maybe uh, in retrospect i wonder if um What's his name? Paul Westerberg thinks he's an ass for saying this, but when the replacements were going through their thing, they were saying, you know, are they going to have Paul Westerberg do a solo record with real musicians or pseudo band? And his quote was, who am I going to get to play drums? Jeff Pocono? Oh, you know, he, he was being a dick, you know? Yeah. yeah, because he has to sabotage his own recording. Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah you of know course what, he does. Of course. It, what I liked about Jeff Picaro was, even though they were that LA scene and they were that, that yacht rock and all that, Picaro came from he came from a great line of East Coast musicians. He was totally East Coast. His family, yeah, yeah. The father um, father was an arranger or something. Yeah, so he had that East Coast attitude. He almost had that New York attitude. I hear Picaro was a scary guy. Like if he if he was not if he wasn't happy with you, you you had to get out of the room. You know, I like that. Yeah, yeah, me too. Kind of like Jim Gordon. Uh, before Jim Gordon murdered his mother when he was in his full psychosis mode, and this is not to be insensitive, but he was a big man. And he would, apparently he was in a session, he walked over to the, he loomed over to the bass player and like looked at it and said, you're messing with my time. <laughs> you know, like, like, I won't do that anymore. <laughs> Don't hurt me. You know, <laughs> but, like I said, but before, the, the horror, here was a big guy and a legend, a six foot four, 250 pound legend come out saying you're messing with my time you're like i won't do that i won't do that you know but um <laughs> you know like, i think when you have that type of capability you can you know a prima donna is one thing but a perfectionist or someone who wants to get it right that's a whole other story and if you can tell by his drumming and those perry you sent me those videos i mean i can't do that i, I try to do that stuff you know hopefully i come close but it's you know it's a certain thing it's a certain thing and it's easy when you know how so now that you mentioned that, I wanted to throw in um, about uh, we were talking the other week about Sling Blade, right? I reckon you're going to kill you with it. In <laughs> French fried potatoes. I'm going to nervous hospital. But uh, Jim Jammers, of course, uh, had a you, boy. With, you know, with the paper hat at the. Uh, <laughs> but but um, all musicians, Dwight Yoakam. Billy Bob Thornton, Mickey Jones, Vic Chestnut, and the guy who played the the poet, he was a musician as well. Lawrence Ferlinghetti. 
No, no, the guy who played the poet in the movie when they right, were right. sitting there yeah. in the living room. That guy, yeah, yeah. Uh, they, but they were all musicians that were acting in the movie. Th- th- that's good. Why? Well, oh, now Dwight Yoakam was an actor before he was a musician, correct? Or no, we, we don't know. No, no, no. He just while he was, he studied acting while he was a musician. Okay, but he played a musician in that movie, although a bad one. No, no, no. The point the point is they were musicians. This is from the other week. They were musicians who were acting. Okay. So Vic Chestnut was a real musician. Mickey yeah. Jones was a real musician. And right. and what was really amazing were, about their role? Musicians playing musicians. What, what, well, what was amazing is that they had to play shitty musicians, and they did it. It's hard yeah. to play shitty. You know what I mean? Like yeah. no, no, it's not. <laughs> and they're like they're playing that little like surf thing, you know? And like no, you got to play through it. You got to play through it. We need a manager. <laughs> and then the, the, the uh, mother was like, leave, leave, leave. Get out of my house. Get out of my house. Leave. We're no geniuses. <laughs> well, anyway, a great movie with a bunch of musicians yeah. in their acting. Yeah. Awesome movie. Great movie. Yeah. And Mickey Jones, a great drummer who was with Dylan getting booed all over the country. And also, also uh, before that, uh, Johnny Rivers. Mickey Jones was Johnny Rivers' drummer. I believe that's him playing on the live stuff. Um, oh, like Secret Agent Man, Memphis. Uh, he's a dead drummer, unfortunately. Did, did he really? Uh, yeah, did, did he die naturally, or did he do something crazy? Uh, I don't know, but I know he's. Uh, he's Are you sure? Like, really? Uh, yeah. Okay. I believe. So. Well, you know what? I hope I'm wrong. Now, apparently, he had a penchant for collecting Nazi regalia, but that's something I read in the book about the band. Well, that's his. That's his cross to bear, I guess. That's true. I'm just oh. saying. I'm not saying one thing away. I'm just saying that's something I read about. Read about. He was. Yeah. He was a rather eccentric individual. Yeah, but uh, so do you want to give out our uh, our email address, Lou? Are we done? I, well, I don't know. We're at seventy-seven minutes. You guys want to keep rolling? We'll roll. Well, I, 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 I got. got I got to. I got to pee. You know. I mean. All right. Something. Something quick here before we go. Uh, we talked about this briefly before. It's just something somebody sent to me. Uh, the other uh, last week, I was jamming with uh, two of my friends in separate places, and I started doing that. Uh, that Hal Blaine beat the boom, 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 crack, boom, boom, yes. boom, crack. And how uh-huh. you could do that, that? That's like almost like take a dump, where you could do that in any song. <laughs> but so someone sent to me a, 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 an email link. It's uh, the Blaine beat. It's that beat that has been done on at least 30 different songs, including Say Goodbye to Hollywood by um, by Billy Joel. But anyway, so I was hey, playing with my friend Steve and we started doing I started doing that beat. He goes, what is that? I said, that's Hal Blaine. And then I added castanets to my electric drum kit. So they added more. And we just started playing all these girl, girl group songs as a group. And it worked. <laughs> So then that Monday, I went to play another with another friend, and uh, we did the same thing. I said, I've been playing this beat. I said, check this out. You've heard this. So it's, it's, it's morphed into this thing where that, you know, what it was is it, it, it's a 4-4 beat, but Blaine forgot to hit the snare drum on the 2. So he just hits the snare drum on the 4, so it's boom, 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 snare, 1, two, three, 4, you know. So that became the, the template for all this stuff, and it's another testament to his genius as, as a player. And his influence and his lasting influence as a player, where that that has gone on throughout the ages. I've done it. I do it now. I'm, I'm other assorted people I'm playing with. I'll do that beat, and it works. Um, and and Max also, Weiss, decided to keep it. Yeah, 
And yeah. Max, Max Weinberg used it on a lot of Bruce Springsteen records. So it's something where it's we can all do it as drummers. We can all do it. We're not stealing. We're using it because it's tribute. But it, it works in so many formats. But it's something that he did where he just forgot to lay his left hand down on the snare drum on, on, the, on the two. And it became something where it's like that stuck. It just kind of hung in there. Interesting. But, yeah, we talked about Hal Blaine and the Wrecking Crew, but that's just part of the lasting legacy of that particular player. And even people, I'm going to put in with uh, up there with Ginger Baker, where Neil Peart said, even if you don't know who Ginger Baker was, he goes, he influenced you as a drummer. And he's talking about drummers. Even if you never heard a Cream song, you did. <laughs> and even yeah. if you didn't, it's in your it's in your genes because you know Ginger Baker goes into your DNA somehow. So even Hal Blaine, if you've heard, if you're even people who are younger than us, they've heard those songs. I've tested it on people I work with. I said, Hal Blaine, who's that? I said, you know. We'll have music on America comes on horse, you know, whatever. I can't think of a song now, whatever the America song is, a million of them. Daisy Jane, I said, that's Hal Blaine on drums, you know. This, I, I have someone who was a, a fan of the TV show, uh, Mash. I, oh, no, Three's Company. I said, that's Hal Blaine on the drums. It's like everywhere universal. And that now, kind of... even on like on these America records, is he uncredited or was his name actually on there as a musician? He's on there as a musician. There's no yeah. way that guy would go. Uncredited. Right. But on those old 45s that yeah. they played on, they I, I were think, uncredited. Yeah. He's, I, I mean, he's on the early stuff up until I think 74. Um, some of the George Martin stuff is, um, is it David Dickey? No, it's a, a Willie Leacox, I think, on, on drums. But um, my friend, I, the song he played on um, Daisy Jane, uh, not, not Horse with No Name, but he's on a lot of their hits before. I, maybe it might be Tin Man. I don't know. Maybe not. But um, Horse with No Name has great percussion, by the way. Who played that? Probably Ray Cooper. <laughs> you know, well, a Horse with No Name, that's Ray Cooper for sure. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But um, I think that might be Hal Blaine on Woman Tonight. Actually, I, don't quote me on that because he's up there until 74. But I'm trying to think of, of their hits they had before that um but but anyway uh, he doesn't need, need that alone because he's on the tommy rose stuff dizzy um yeah uh, that's uh, that's pop bubblegum yeah oh yeah uh, aquarius let the sunshine in that's how blame on drums it's just it, it's endless he's on all three hit versions of wichita lineman glenn campbell and he's on and he's on strange rivers strangers in the night Stranger, yeah he's on love the sinatra stuff um so yeah. is glenn campbell yep it does glenn campbell work. plays guitar on strangers in the night yep. And he was born Harold Simon Belsky in 1929. He lived to be 90, um, which is pretty another, cool. Another dead drummer. Yeah. But, well, you know, I mean, that's to, to live to 90 and have that kind of life behind you. Yeah. He, he, he had a right. boat. He had a big house. And a, yeah. He had a mansion. Yeah. And part of his thing with his, too, was his appeal as a drummer was not only was he great to work, he had a larger than life personality. Like when the guy came into his session, he was like, you know, Hal Blaine's here, you know. Things are fun. Things are going to be good. And, you know, he probably nailed everything in one or two takes because that's how great he was. But um, he had a little thing where, he, where whenever he did a session, he'd write on the wall. Like, I think Hal Blaine was here. Like, like Kilroy was here, like his own little early meme. Yeah. Yep. But like, so I read so many drummers from like, you know, Taylor Hawkins, I think he was one guy. He goes, I go to the studio. And I like, I look behind me. He says, Hal Blaine was here. You're like, shit. You know, like, like <laughs> I got I got to I have to do this now, you know, which shows how a guy like that as you know comparatively young as he was that he knew who hal blaine was and said yeah that guy was the he was the man you know one of, of many but yeah a giant he certainly well i mean you know if, i mean if you had a we don't have enough time for even go through a list of the things this guy has played on oh no I, i've sent i've sent all, all this list out it, it's it's amazing he's played on more number one hits i think well he was um the drummer 
the record has not been beaten, I think from 67 to 73, whatever. He was the drummer on every one, every single number one song of the year for like six or seven years consecutively. Beat wow. that. Beat that you can't, that's not been beaten. Yeah. Now, was he strictly LA or did he have to, did he go to New York occasionally? Oh, he probably, he probably did the same thing Jim Gordon did. They, they fly the red eye, they do a session in LA, fly the red eye out, out to New York and fly it back for another session for Randy Newman or whomever. In, in the morning, you know, why you can do it, you know. And we, Mark, have you seen the Wrecking Crew doc? No, I have to see that. Oh, yeah, please do. Um, it, it, it's, it's great, as you know, it's just great, but it just shows you, like, these guys, they, they knew that, you know, you can't say no to a gig. They knew it was going to end at one point. But yeah. when it did end, it, it's bittersweet. But uh, the, I think the guy's name was Bob Casey, he goes, or no, it wasn't whoever. He goes, he goes, you know, we had, had the reason they weren't rock stars because they had families and they were kind of normal. You know what I mean? They weren't, they weren't yeah. freaky. They didn't have to dress freaky or do any. You know, they were, they were just, they were too good to do that. Yeah, know? but a guy like Hal Blaine, I heard like you know he had a he had a set of drums at Gold Recorders. Then he had a set of drums at Western Sound because he was working wow. with Wilson there. He's working over here. He had like three drum sets in LA wow. at separate studios because after he did his four hours here, he was going to go there for four hours. And he, you know. Wow. And that, I didn't know that that's amazing. That just shows what his clout. Yeah. Because yeah, he's not, he's not going to lug his drum kit in a cab across LA to do a session. He didn't have to, they were, they were set up and ready yeah. for him. He sat down and Brian Wilson. I mean, Brian Wilson lauded him to the, to, to the heavens and back. So, yeah. So, you don't, you know, that, that reputation speaks for itself, but those years, those golden years and, but when it crashed, it crashed, you know, and, you know, that, that but they knew it, but, you know. Well, that, well I don't know, the period had to come to an end. It yeah. Just yeah. yeah. And a lot of that has to do with costs, where a lot of these artists, you know, singers, you know, they, they had bands. They used their touring bands to go into the studio. They could probably pay them. They, you know, they the bands were probably on retainer, like on salary. So if you want Hal Blaine for four hours, guess you're going you're gonna to pay. And rightfully so. I mean, given the fact that, you know, if you, I think with the birds when they did uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, that might be two or three takes. When I forget the song they did after that with, with the birds themselves with Michael Clark on drums, it was 72 takes. So, mm. I mean, I understand wanting to bring your band in, and I wouldn't want to be the drummer who got X'd out of that session like Ringo did in favor of Alan White. Yeah, but that Ringo. was way, way early on. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think that's Bernard Purdy on the day in the life, Perry. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> wait, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. Facts, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he plays Ringo a lot. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Lou, Lou. Yeah. He played on Song Sung Blue by Neil Diamond. That is one of my favorite songs. How Blade? Yeah. Of course he did. Yeah. And he played on Half Breed by Cher. Yes, he did. Um, Indian and, Reservation. And, <laughs> and how, Love how, Will how, Keep Us Together. Love will uh, keep Hal, us together, Captain and Tennille. Oh my right, god, right. good songs. Um, he, he loved Hal Blaine loved tom toms. If you look at his last kit in the eighties, there's about seventeen mounted tom toms. But um, I love I love tom toms too. Uh, I want a big drum kit again. But yeah, the guy is just you know he, what he did. He, he wasn't afraid to play. And um, some of the America cuts on the early albums, like the album cuts, his drumming it's sublime. And the fact that America, being a young band, got Hal Blaine to play in a record says a lot about them. Also, the fact that, you know, how Blaine could probably pick and choose at that point and said, yeah, I'll do that. I also remember seeing him like he wasn't he wasn't like Neil Peart was like buried behind his drums. How Blaine was like rising above the drums. Yeah. You know, yeah. He was hidden behind them. It, oh. it, it's, all, it's all matter of leverage and physics. I, I don't like things as a drummer. 
I've got long arms and short legs. I don't like things too far away from me. So I like a compact kit. You know, why reach when you don't have to? Um, but I, I see how Blake, although he had a lot of drums, like you said, he wasn't buried behind it. And Neil, well, Neil's, Neil's drum set is a thing unto itself. You know, that, that's and, and I love I love those documentaries, you know, about the Wrecking Crew when they're working with Brian Wilson on like Pet Sounds and like Hal Blaine's the quarterback. You know, he counts it in. Come on, Hal. Oh, yeah. Yep. You know, he's the quarterback. He was in the driver's seat. You know, the thing is, yep. you know, it, 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 that's the whole thing about they say about, you know, drummers that, you know, if, if your band has a good guitar player, a good singer, a good bass player, if your drummer's not that good, you're never going to go anywhere. And to have a guy like that that could come in and intuitively know how the song is going to go, know what the natural feel and natural life of that song has is, is priceless. And, you know, they, you know, they counted on it and you can't, you can't pay him extra for that. You can just say, you know, the guy knew what he was doing. He just had that, that innate feel for the, what the natural rhythm of a song goes. And that's why those, that's why be my baby sounds just as good as the three's company song, you know, or, or uh, yeah. anything by, you know, I don't think he played in Gordon Lightfoot, but. Well, I, I, that's a bit of a stretch. I think <laughs> with the three's company. Well, l- listen, I'm it's just going to read. Don't carry, it, it, it's a shitty recording. I got to say, but it's got a groove. It's got a groove. Listen, here's sad. This is kind of sad. <laughs> I'm going to read you a couple sentences here. Blaine played less session work from the 1980s onward as computers and electronics began to be used in studios and producers began to bring in younger players. The popularization of the drum machine also reduced demand for session drummers. He kept busy recording advertising jingles for a number of years before semi-retiring from performing. Now, here's the killer. He lost most of his wealth following a divorce. Mm-hmm. At one point, he was working as a security guard in Arizona. Does that sound like uh, Walter White or what? Does that sound like Breaking Bad? I mean, <laughs> really, it does. Yeah, yeah. We're working at the college. I mean, I'm gonna say, F you and F your eyebrows. Yeah, well, he wasn't advised to sign a prenuptial agreement. So, no, the thing said, about, all... Mark, in the, in the Wrecking Crew doc, he mentions that, but. To me, it's like, you know, there's a story behind a story there, I think. You know, one day you come home, you've got a, you've got a yacht next to you, you don't have anything. How did she get everything? But that's a whole story unto itself. You never know. Yeah. And then maybe it was naivete or who knows or lack of guile. But like I said, he got taken to the cleaners. Like you said, he was working as a security guard, which somehow seems kind of wrong. Yeah. Um, but wow. Well, anyway, guys, are well, not we're like the Tonight Show, man. We're just at 90 minutes. Holy You're correct, sir. So uh, who wants to give out the uh, who wants to give out the uh, email address? I think Mark should. <laughs> uh, I don't know it. <laughs> Maybe Mark shouldn't do it. <laughs> I'll do it. It's the music. Um, Mark's podcast. on his fifth Chardonnay, all right? <laughs> <laughs> it's Easter. This is the Easter episode of the Music Relish Podcast. Um, it is the Music Relish Podcast at gmail.com. Write to us. And, us. And, Tell us things we don't want to hear. And also, we have a website. It's musicrelishpodcast.wordpress.com. And you can possibly leave us a comment there as well. When did we get that? You know, it is what it is. Okay. So, um, well, let's say goodnight, man. We're 90 minutes. We're, in, we're, we're just at the Tonight Show. The old Tonight Show. <laughs> Well, it was a good gig. I'll see you guys next week. All right, man. Bye. See you next week, guys. Good, Good show.